0: Welcome to the Stone Choir podcast. I am Corey J. Mahler. And I'm Wo. Today's episode of Stone Choir
1: is going to be discussing the made-up sin of slavery, as we did a couple weeks ago, one about racism. We're now going to touch on another extremely hot topic. Uh, This is not a dead issue. Slavery is something that, although it has been eliminated in the West, it still exists in other parts of the world. But the reason that it's still controversial is that it is fundamentally rooted in much of the gospel message itself. So the theme that we're going to present today is not only is slavery itself not a sin per se, but in fact you can't actually understand scripture if you do not accept slavery qua slavery. Uh, Before we get into the meat of this, I wanted to issue two brief corrections from last week's episode. Um, One, the last two episodes ran about five hours combined, That's longer than we want these to be. In both cases, we were working line by line through things that the Missouri Senate Corporation had issued. So we really didn't have quite the editorial control over what we had to discuss. We do have that control today. So we're going to keep this under 90 minutes, even if it means we have to cut our own microphones. So I'm not sure exactly how long this will be, but I promise you it will be a regular length episode. As I was listening again to last week's episode, I heard myself say something that really rubbed me the wrong way. So I'm sure it bugged some of you, and so I'd like to issue a correction of what I said. I mentioned that I had gone hunting with my dad, and I said I didn't really like it, and I said something about clover and bees, and when I was listening, I thought, man, that guy sounds like a complete hippie tree hugger. That is not me. So I want to clarify for the record, in honor of my father and all of my ancestors and mighty hunters like Nimrod, I do not think that hunting is a moral wrong. I think that hunting is a great thing. As apex predators, as the pinnacle of creation, man in many places must hunt simply because we have displaced the other apex predators. So I have no problems with hunting. What I said and what what I meant was that I personally, just as an aesthetic choice, when I see a wild animal out my window or when I'm walking around in, in nature, my first thought is what a miracle it is, that all these wild creatures live entirely by God's providence, that all their food, that their shelter, that everything is by their wits and their cunning and directly from God's blessings. And I, I take that as a as reassurance because our own lives, particularly mine, are, is so separated from the immediacy of God's providence. So I have a roof over my head. It's warm in the winter. It's cool in the summer. Whenever I get hungry, if I don't have food in the house, I can go to the grocery store and they have food. That's life on easy mode. A wild animal doesn't have that. So, when I see a wild animal, my first thought is not that, my first thought is that I'm reminded of God's blessings to all of us. And I don't want the animal happening across me to be the reason that its own life ended. But for hunters, God bless you. I, I appreciate it. You go out, you kill animals. I know that those responsible hunters respect and understand that that sacrifice is something that God is giving to them. So, I have zero moral problems with it. Hunting is great. We need more of it, not less. If, if kids were spending more time outside doing that, it would be a better place. When, when I was hunting as a kid, it was zero degrees and 4 a.m., so it was kind of unpleasant for, for those reasons. The other thing that I said that I realized um, wasn't wasn't a mistake, but w- I, I said something a little unusual. When we were talking specifically about slavery, the first two times I referred to the political events in the United States in the 1800s, I said prohibition twice before correcting myself to say abolition and I was thinking about why I made that mistake and I realized that something was happening that was a little bit interesting, at least to me. I'm very analytical about my own mistakes. I always go back over and try to figure out why did I get something wrong? When I couldn't remember the word abolition the first two times I said prohibition, for one thing prohibition was equally accurate. We did prohibit slavery but it's not the precise term that was used at that time for the political movement. I think that what my brain was doing was preventing me from saying abolition because it's really lousy framing. Abolition is today a very loaded, morally tinged word that is the opposite frame of the one that I hold. I hold that slavery was prohibited. It was legal and then it was made illegal. And while I think that that is a permissible policy choice for a nation, the anti-slavery moral positioning that abolition was the stamping out of an ontological evil and that that itself was an absolute moral good that justified any manner of evil in its name. I fundamentally object to that, and that is why we're doing this episode. And so I think my brain was protecting me from fumbling into the adversary's framing by calling it abolition. So anyway, I noticed that I, I said that, and I had mentioned in the episode we might do a slavery episode in the future. We decided let's do it next because it was also one of the made-up sins that the lcms president condemned explicitly he said that we were pro-slavery which is a lie but that's a very profound question so as i promised today we are going to be going through scripture not line by line but we're going to go through many of the places where slavery is acknowledged where it is permitted where it is in some cases commanded where it's used and the fact that it is never explicitly prohibited, condemned as a sin anyway. And I want to acknowledge up front that because, you know, if we were to do the full treatment of this episode, of this topic, the way we did for race, which took five episodes over probably about 10 hours, this could easily be probably a 30 hour series. We're not going to do that. It's 90 minutes. What we're going to talk about today is specifically what Scripture says in favor of slavery. We're going to almost completely ignore all the arguments that are trotted out principally from the New Testament to justify abolition. The reason for that is that it's a case that we've made before. If you are talking about something and you're saying Scripture prohibits it, prohibits it you must deal with the places where Scripture doesn't prohibit it. So we're just going to give you all the places where God says, this is fine, I do not have a problem with this, and I am the Lord your God. If somebody else wants to come along and make an argument, the Scripture, oh, actually, God says that, they have to deal with everything we're saying. So this is the affirmative case for why slavery itself is not a sin. So we're going to spend the entire 90 minutes, minus my intro, talking specifically in Scripture.
0: So I thought about first starting with Abraham. But I think, in fact, to go roughly chronologically, we have to start earlier than Abraham. We have to start with Job, because Job is almost certainly the oldest book in the Bible. And the treatment in Job is very brief. We really only need two verses from Job, three verses from Job. But it makes the point very succinctly, and really it makes the totality of the point, But of course, we won't end the episode there. Job is described in the opening of the book of Job as a man who is blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. He is described as a good man. He is described as righteous throughout the book of Job. He fears God. He does not sin with his lips through most of the book of Job. But what's noteworthy there is Scripture notes the wealth of Job, He possessed sheep, camels, yoke of oxen, female donkeys. There's a reason they're specified as female donkeys, but that's for another time, and very many slaves. Some modern translations will say servants. They weren't servants, they were slaves. He owned these people. They depended on him for their livelihood, for their shelter, their bread, their clothing. He owned these people. They were his property. And he is commended as being blameless and upright despite being a slave owner. Of course, that goes against what modern individuals, modern men would tell you. They'd say that you can't be morally upright if you're a slave owner because slavery itself is wicked. Well, it's not what Scripture says. And then at the end of Job, chapter 42, it says that God restores to him twice as much as he had before. That includes twice as many slaves as he had before. God gave Job slaves. And so if someone wants to argue that trading in slaves, giving someone slaves, possessing slaves is sin, well, you've just accused God of sin and you've said that scripture is wrong when it calls a man righteous who owns slaves. And that's just the oldest book in the Bible. It's throughout the entirety of the Bible that you see this accurate, this correct teaching on scripture. And so we'll move to Genesis and deal with Abraham, starting of course as Abram, since we start with the call of Abram, which is in Genesis 12. And in Genesis 12, it is noted that Abram has slaves. That would be Genesis 12:5, And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan." Those people they acquired, those are slaves. They acquired them. You acquire property. And so the beginning of God dealing with Abram, who would become Abraham, Abram has slaves. God doesn't tell him to put away his slaves. God doesn't tell him to leave his slaves, because slavery is not a sin. God told him to leave the idolatry of the land in which he lived, to leave those things that were sin behind. He did not tell him to leave his slaves. And then, of course, how does God bless him? Well, he gives him more slaves because he acquires more slaves when he sojourns in Egypt. And that's the same chapter, chapter 12, slightly later on, verse 16. And for her sake, that is Sarai, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Of course, those are, again, slaves. This is, I'm reading from the ESV, which sometimes likes to play little games. But when it says servants, it means slaves. Because in this era, you didn't have servants. You had slaves. You had men and women you owned as property, and they performed various tasks for you. And these were given to Abram by Pharaoh. So he gave him slaves. God blessed Abram with these things. And so, moving on to the next chapter, chapter 13. Here we get an idea of just how many slaves Abram had. Because this is where Abram has to separate from Lot, because they cannot dwell together because their flocks and the number of people they have to care for those flocks in their households is so large that they overburden the land. They have to split. That's how many slaves God gave Abram as a blessing. And so here in the beginning of Scripture, we see that having slaves is not a sin. Rather, it is a blessing from God, at least under these circumstances. It's not saying that slavery is always a blessing from God. But if it can be a blessing from God, then it cannot be a sin. And that, of course, is the point.
1: This is something that comes up explicitly in uh, Genesis 24, when Abram, Abraham sends out his servant or his slave, one of his chief slaves, to find a wife for Isaac. And when he comes to Laban and speaks to him, his Abraham servant says, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male slaves and female slaves, camels and donkeys. So, explicitly, it says the giving of slaves is a gift from God. There's no circumstance in which enslavement can possibly be a sin per se when God is saying, hey, here's a blessing to you, have some slaves. And I think that one of the problems that we have in our modern minds is that. The idea of being enslaved to us seems so horrific based on Hollywood portrayals that we don't consider whether the transaction of God giving Abraham slaves was not a blessing to both Abraham and to the slave. Because imagine if you lived in that time and God gave you into the hand of Abraham to be his property, is that a curse or is that a blessing? I think that if you believe what Scripture says about the sort of man that Abraham was, then the idea that you would belong to that man is a profound honor. It is something that we don't really understand today because it's alien to our culture, but to be owned by a man, not only is it not inherently morally tinged either way, but it can actually be a tremendous blessing. Now, indeed, there were certainly slave owners in every era, in every culture, who were horrible. And there were also many who were great men, who were kind, who were honest, who treated their slaves well. And if one's lot in life was to be a slave, then to be owned by a man who was a good man was a blessing from God. So I think it's important that we don't permit the Marxist dialectic approach to these questions of power dynamics structure how we think about these relationships. Because there are two men in that relationship. There's Abraham, the master, and then there's a slave. Now, this was one of his chief slaves that had been sent on this crucial mission. He was one of his most trusted servants, but he owned him. Abraham owned this man. This man loved Abraham. He was sent far away with money and with gifts and with a profound mission for his master. And it was his greatest privilege to serve that. And that's the reason I said at the beginning that the Christian life can only be understood I think in the context of the proper understanding of slavery because we all have duties you know as lutherans we call things vocation but there are obligations that we have to do certain things and sometimes it's just narrowly within your own household sometimes it's with your within your neighborhood or whatever but regardless of the context we have obligations to do things that is not freedom the way americans want to think about it that is A type of slavery. It is a type of ownership where one's licit moral choices are bounded by the obligations we have. And those obligations are inherited ultimately from God through the headship under which we are placed. And in certain times and places throughout most of history, a big part of that was the institution of men owning other men.
0: And we also see in the slaves that are transferred to the ownership Of Abraham particularly the ones from Pharaoh we see that promise of God to bless all nations in the seed of Abraham already taking place because they are coming into the family the extended family in this case of Abraham and so they will hear that gospel they will hear the Messiah who is to come and so we already see God fulfilling his plan for humanity via slavery And so it's difficult to say that slavery is an evil when God is using it for the ultimate good. And before we move on to Exodus, I think it's worth just pulling out a quick comment from Genesis 21. When God addresses Hagar, when God addresses the issue of Hagar speaking to Abraham, he says, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. He says slave woman, he doesn't use her name. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. To most modern ears, it's going to sound terrible that God says slave woman. He doesn't use her name. God, of course, knows her name. He addresses her later on in Genesis and does use her name there. But here he just calls her the slave woman because he's noting that relationship between Abraham and Hagar. Abraham, even though Hagar is now his concubine, he still owns her. She's still his property.
1: Briefly, before we get into Exodus, I just want to point out that not only did Abraham receive tremendous blessings from God, in large part by having numerous slaves, but Isaac and Jacob were also similarly blessed. So, although we're pointing back to this early period in the old testament it's important to refute the notion that oh well that was cultural on one hand you have god giving his blessings to his own people i mean at this point abraham had become a believer in god and god was richly blessing him had promised that he would be the source of the messiah that his lineage would be and but it's not just that it was oh old-timey and so they had slaves it wasn't that that was then, and this is now, and that's one of the. It's one of the things that I think Americans, in particular, but really everyone in the West, has been just fundamentally brain damaged by the post Enlightenment thinking, as we've talked about in the last few episodes, about the priors from the Enlightenment, from the French Revolution in particular, that became our own creed of liberty being a paramount moral virtue, when. I hope that we're making the pattern clear that liberty, as it is held up in the secular world, is nothing of the sort. It is not a blessing. It is actually a curse. It is wickedness. It is itself rebellion against God. And it always follows in the on the heels of tremendous evil, and evil springs from it. So when slavery existed in these periods, both among believers and among unbelievers, in myriad forms, you know, for example, the... The slave that Abraham sent to find Isaac a wife was certainly one of his most senior slaves. He would have had a higher station in in civilization than the slave who was mucking the stalls. Now that's that flies in the face of oh we're all created equal we all have equality no we don't some men are really only equipped for mucking stalls and if that is what you're equipped for that is a blessing do it do it well. If all you can do is clean toilets, make them the cleanest toilets you can. That is you blessing your neighbors by being the gift that God wants you to be for your those in your life. It is not diminishing the value of a man inherently to say he's only good for shoveling cow manure or cleaning toilets. It is saying that here's what you can do, do it well. The men who can do better who can do more lofty and more respected things equally well are given higher station but God also spends a great deal of time in scripture talking about the fact that you know the first shall be last and the last shall be first now it's not only talking about power dynamics it's not talking about only the rich and the poor abraham was tremendously wealthy and he is certainly not the least in heaven so i don't want to make it strictly about that but it's to say that when you have someone who has a lowly station in life maybe someone is a slave of slaves If they're a faithful believer, God will reward them. And the things that they have lacked in this life, God promises they will receive in the new earth. And so as we deal with these questions of equality and inequality and how men rank hierarchically, how we perform our duties hierarchically, I think it's important to note, as we always say, we're not talking about our standing before God. God shows no partiality in this life and in the hierarchy of order that god has instituted there are differences just as there are differences in the angels there are angels and there are archangels god is a god of hierarchy and order so the fact that we find these patterns in all times and all places it's not some historical aberration it's not that oh they didn't understand democracy yet they didn't understand liberty and freedom and equality and now that we have those things we're better than them that's absolutely not the case These men were living godly lives and they were blessed by God for it, and that included the inequality of man before man.
0: And so unlike dealing with slavery in Genesis, the issue is a more general one in Exodus, and I want to address it more generally instead of pulling out particular verses and highlighting those. Because yes, there are many times that slavery is mentioned, particularly in Genesis, and the following books where it says that God took them out of the house of slavery in Egypt, and that phrase, out of the house of slavery, is repeated many times. But I want to highlight something about slavery and Exodus. Yes, the Israelites are enslaved by the Egyptians in Egypt for centuries, but slavery itself is never once condemned in Exodus. In fact, beyond that, Pharaoh, the Egyptians are never condemned for enslaving the Israelites. There isn't a single verse condemning that in scripture. Not one in Exodus, not one anywhere else. What is noted in passing, and it could be argued that it is condemned, and I think it's a fair argument, is the oppression and the affliction. They were mistreating the Israelites as their slaves, because there is a standard to which slave masters are held with regard to their slaves. That comes later in Scripture, but that is relevant here. And so when they tell them you don't get hay, but you still have to make bricks, that's mistreating your slaves, and that's not acceptable. But reducing them to slavery and keeping them as slaves is not condemned. What is condemned, what God makes the point in Exodus, is that ultimately... The Israelites, even though they are for a time slaves to the Egyptians, they belong to God. They're his slaves. He owns them. And so when he tells Pharaoh, give me my property, and Pharaoh says, no, that's the problem. The problem is not that they were reduced to slavery, not they were kept as slaves, not they were treated as slaves. The problem is that they were not given back to God when he told Pharaoh, Give me back my people that they may go and serve me. Yeah,
1: that's absolutely the case. When, when God said, let my people go, we ignore the my part. That's possessive. God is saying, these are mine. You've had them. I want them back. As you said, Pharaoh said, no, that was the entire problem. There were other slaves in Egypt. In fact, as an Egyptian, you belonged to the Pharaoh. You had to worship Pharaoh as God, which was another part of, of the problem God was dealing with was the Egyptians' idolatry but there was no notion that oh no slavery is bad you need to free all the people who are captive every egyptian was fundamentally a captive to the pharaoh god was saying the israelites are mine i want them back if you don't do it these are the consequences and the consequences as you said last week included god delivering genocide against the egyptians as judgment for not giving god his property his people
0: and when god says let my people go because it does say that it says in one place let my son go that he may serve me let my people go that they may serve me it's always the point of letting them go so they may serve their ultimate master which of course is god it's not letting them free it's not liberating them it is transferring them to their rightful master because as we will get into in the new testament certainly We are all slaves of God, and that is a fundamental truth of the Christian faith. You are God's property. You cannot be anything else. Even if you are in rebellion, you're still God's property. You are just rebellious, useless property instead of useful property. Those terms mean something, and we'll get into that soon enough as well.
1: I want to specifically highlight Exodus 21, where it talks about the rules for slaves, just because it explicitly eliminates several of the claims that are made that, well, ancient slavery was one sort of thing, but more modern forms of slavery, particularly as we had in the Antebellum South, those were evil. The stuff before wasn't evil, and there are certain patterns that are permissible or impermissible. I'm going to read this passage and just point out a couple things because it's vital to dismissing those arguments against slavery per se. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing if he comes in single he shall go out single if he comes in married then his wife shall go out with him if his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone but if the slave plainly says i love my master my wife and my children i will not go out free then his master shall bring him to god and he shall bring him to the door or to the doorpost And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Now, two things there. One, slavery was permitted for life. Two, you could absolutely be born into slavery. So those are claims that are made elsewhere in history as, oh, well, one kind of slavery back in the olden Bible days was maybe that was okay for a time. But what they did over here was evil. Well, two of those specific examples are shown here. You can absolutely be born into slavery, and you can be owned your entire life. And as, as Corey mentioned earlier, the ESV butchers the word slave in most places in Scripture. It's, it's one of the few places where modern corrupt thinking is snuck into it. In some of the later quotes from the New Testament, I went in and just edited it because it was nonsense. When, when you read the term bondservant, just read slave. When you t- read the word "servant," you should usually think "slave." There may be cases where it was actually closer to a servant, like Potiphar's servant. You know, they're are very highly placed men who are they're given higher status in in life, but fundamentally they're still slaves. Which is to say, fundamentally they're still owned by another man, which is the definition of a slave it is not social status principally. It is not wealth principally. It is, are you free to go, to come and go as you please and to do as you please without another other, another man saying, no, you may not do this. So in scripture and in time after scripture, that is the fundamental definition of slavery. If you're owned, even for a time, I have ancestors. I know one who came over on the Mayflower who was an indentured servant. He was effectively a slave. He was a slave for a period of time while he worked off a debt. But nevertheless, he was owned. He was not free to come and go as he pleased. He had to rack up a certain amount of profit for his owner before he could be freed, before the indenture ended. And so we play these word games because we get, in the 21st century, we go so squeamish about the very word slavery. But if you look at things just plainly in terms of, well, One man owns another man and determines what he can and cannot do. That is not inherently a moral question. In the second part of the Exodus 21 passage, I just want to mention briefly, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to foreign people since he has broken faith with her. Now, God is literally saying, when a man sells his daughter. So this also acknowledges that the oranges of slavery are not necessarily kidnapping, which we'll get to later. There can be conquest, there can be transfer of title. And God acknowledges that it is permissible, in principle, morally, for a man, for a father, to transfer the title of his daughter to someone else as property. That's utterly shocking to us. I don't like the sound of it. I'm not not saying, oh, this is great. I'm saying this is what God says, and we don't get to accuse God of sin. So if you hear an argument in favor of abolition that says these are sins, just know that the man who's making that argument is accusing God of sin. That's why I wanted to highlight Exodus 21 particularly, because it puts to death several notions that say, well, this slavery was okay, but this slavery is bad. No. The slavery that was seen in the West in the latter 18th, 19th century was itself— somewhere in the middle on the scale of how bad slavery could get for people we'll get to some examples of what slavery is like in roman days that were far worse than anything that we've ever even heard about in our days so don't let someone try to pluck things out of history and then misconstrue them in ways that can lead to conclusions that condemn god
0: It is also worth noting that God permits corporal punishment of your slaves here. The only restrictions being that if you kill your slave, you are to be punished unless he survives for a day or two after you inflict the injury that ultimately causes his death. And if you damage his eye or his tooth, he is allowed to go free. And so even physically punishing your slaves is permitted in Scripture. And so those who argue that, well, they whipped them or beat them, that's permitted by god you cannot argue that is sin that is something god says is fine and it is also worth highlighting that god says that you are not allowed to sell your women to foreign peoples perhaps for a a future episode another topic but it's worth noting that is in scripture that is a restriction here since you brought up the the difference there between Servant and slave and yes the ESV and other modern translations sometimes play games with that which is unfortunate We have several places in scripture where it is extremely clear That there is a difference between these and just what that difference is. I will Pull up that verse here helps if I'm not typing in Greek In Mark 10 you have Christ speaking But it shall not be so among you, speaking as those who lord over others amongst the the heathen, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Well, we have the two words right there, both servant and slave, clearly differentiated. And so it's inexcusable that some of these translations play games with the word doulos, which is what slave is there, and servant is diakonos. So we have both of these terms, and they are different. They're used in Scripture. They're used in the exact same passages, contrasting. So we know what these terms mean. Modern translations should not get away with the little games they like to play. I don't mind bondservant, because bondservant historically is basically equivalent to slave.
1: The the problem with bondservant is it's like chattel. You mentioned chattel slavery last week. Chattel slavery is... It is. It's a redundancy. And the, the problem is that when modern ears hear bond servant, everyone wants to like pop in the monocle and nod sagely, oh, yes, bond servant. Like, no, they were slaves. They were slaves with a price. They were not their own. They were bought with a price. We're going to get to that passage. It was very clearly understood that regardless of the terms and conditions of the slavery, maybe it was ownership, maybe it was a lease, which is basically what bond servants are, you're still a slave, you're still owned, you're still property in the custody of someone who determines what you can and cannot do. And so when terms like bondservant and chattel get thrown around, our brains check out and we're like, oh, well, that, yeah, that's, that's a, it's that special magical Bible thing. Like, no, man, it's, it's just a basic term for a legal concept. There's nothing sophisticated about it. But when people are permitted, they permit themselves to be divorced from what was actually happening we get lazy and say well that doesn't apply to me that doesn't apply to this it doesn't apply to that you just you tune out and say oh bondservant whatever that is it's yeah, i guess they had that but we don't have those anymore so i can ignore that passage and that's fundamentally the point that i think we need to make
0: yeah there are a lot of different historical terms for different types of slavery is really what it comes down to bondservant is one serfs by and large were slaves indentured servitude also slaves. Slaves for a period of time, often treated actually worse than slaves, because obviously if you have a slave for a period of time, it can set up a perverse incentive if you're the sort of person who is weak to that. And that was the case for some of the slave owners in the colonies, certainly, because they realized the indentured servant they had for X number of years, whereas the slave, you have the slave for his entire life. You don't need to get as much work out of him as possible in this set period of time. And we see the same. The reason I bring it up is partly because that is our own context, but partly that's also the same two tier system that we see in Scripture. Because God permitted the Israelites to have their fellow Israelites as slaves, but they were permitted to have them as slaves only for a period of six years, and then they were to go free in the seventh year. You also have to factor in Jubilee, which makes it a little more complicated, but that's the basic rule that God gives them. Whereas foreign slaves could be slaves for life. And you owned their children and their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren. They were your property in perpetuity, whereas your own people had to be permitted to go free or be redeemed. And that's really roughly the same thing we saw in the the slavery system in the U.S., the difference between a slave and an indentured servant.
1: And the crucial point, to be highlighted in your nation and other nations is that was fundamentally racial slavery god made racial differences in the disparate treatment of slaves if they were your own people you get one set of rules if they're other nations other races they get a different worse set of rules you treat foreigners worse than you treat your own race that was codified by god in the law regarding the ownership of human beings We don't get to paper that over. We don't get to ignore it. We don't get to condemn it. We have to deal with it head on. And it's simple reality. God does not condemn certain things that today's post-Enlightenment, post-French Revolution morality condemns. And that's why this podcast series exists, is that we're basically fighting the Enlightenment in reverse. We're trying to undo the damage done by these perverse moralities that have been inserted by Satan into our hearts and minds. So we're pointing to Scripture because people will make arguments on moral grounds that are not in accord with Scripture. And so I said at the beginning, we're going to ignore some of the arguments against slavery that are made from Scripture because they're proof texting. They must necessarily either ignore these passages or condemn them or resort to Marcionism, where you say, well, that was the Demiurge, that was the Old Testament God. We have a different God now. Well, Yes some of those people do have, in fact, have a different God, and that is a, it's a dangerous thing that we're facing today.
0: And just to highlight that difference from Scripture, I'll read one of the passages that deals with that from Leviticus 25. For they, speaking of the Hebrews, are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. As for your male and female slaves, whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you, and their clans that are with you, who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule, one over another ruthlessly. And so that emphasizes what was just said. The Israelites were allowed to purchase as slaves and to keep as slaves in perpetuity those from other nations. God commanded them, required of them, that they treat their own race differently from those of a foreign race.
1: And this is something that shows up in uh, 1 Kings 5 when King Solomon is building the temple. Uh, he gets help from King Hiram of Tyre, uh, who was a friend to his father David. And when Solomon was blessed by God with peace and prosperity, he had the the means, the motive, and the opportunity to build the temple that David had wanted to build. And so, as the temple was being built, First Kings five makes clear, and the commentaries go into detail to bolster the point. There were tens if not hundreds of thousands of slaves who were used in the construction of the temple and king solomon in particular used canaanite slaves conquered alien race of people as slave labor in the construction of the temple now i highlight this fact because the temple is not just like a building the temple was god's home on earth it was where the the holy of holies was built where the Ark of the Covenant was placed, where God had a special presence as he has never had at any other point in human history. The temple was blessed by God. God supervised its construction. He was talking to Solomon on a regular basis about its construction. God knew that these racial Canaanite slaves were being forced to labor on the temple. Now, the reason I highlight this is that in First Kings six it mentions, When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. Now this the temple wasn't even complete at that point, it hadn't been consecrated, they had not finished it, but it was still such a holy, important place that they banned hammers and tools so that there would be no racket, there would be no clatter. The temple was to be as quiet and solemn as possible. That's how much they cared about the construction of the temple. So you cannot ignore the fact that racial slave labor was used in the construction of the temple. That is not a small point. And those slaves were blessed to be a part of it. And again, that's part of those two sides of this equation. Regardless of what the Canaanites thought about their slave labor for Solomon, they were blessed. They were blessed to be a part of something that was magnificent, that was blessed by God in in an absolutely unique way. And God would not have blessed that if it were not in perfect accord with his will. He would not have come down to a place that was evil, that was tainted by the original sin of racism and slavery because slaves helped build it. And yet, these are arguments that we hear in in the lips of some of our own men today. This is not Christianity. So these small vignettes that we were plucking from Scripture, we're not saying that this is the whole point of the Old Testament or the the New Testament, for that matter. We're saying that when God mentions as an aside, oh, by the way, my holy house was built by slave labor who were racially chosen to be slaves, we don't get to say, yeah, but that's sin. I don't like that. God Consecrated it by blessing the temple. We do not get to ignore that, and we do not get to dispute it.
0: I was going to go to the same place. I was going to go to First Kings nine, though, where it is specifically noted that all the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of the people of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction, these Solomon drafted to be slaves. And so they are to this day. But of the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves. So not only was slave labor used to build the temple, it was exclusively non-Israelite slave labor, exclusively foreign slave labor.
1: The first passage in the New Testament that I wanted to highlight that is one that also disputes one of the other arguments in favor of a hypothetical form of freedom that doesn't actually exist. So this is from Romans 6. Paul writes, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I highlight this because I think this goes back to the Garden of Eden. What was the proposition that Satan was making to Eve? He said, you will not surely die, you will be like God. And I think that that is the echo that we hear from the Garden of Eden through Scripture, up through all the recent historical events that we mentioned in past episodes, through to today. there It's not a coincidence. We mentioned last week when we were talking about slavery there that CFW Walther wrote a, in opposition to the abolitionists, and he specifically mentioned that the people who were abolitionists were overwhelmingly atheists, they were anarchists, all other manner of evil Godless people. Anarchy in particular is interesting because one of the slogans of anarchy, which is itself, it's an anti government of sorts, but fundamentally it's just pure hatred of God. In the 1800s, the slogan that was used among anarchists and is used to this day, it's still popular. And you probably heard it No gods, no masters. Well, that's basically what Satan was trying to sell to Eve you will be like God, which is saying you're going to be on equal footing. You will have no God. You will have no master. You will be your own God. That's that's Luther's explanation of the first commandment, that if we fear, love, and trust nothing above ourselves, we become our own gods, and every sin is rooted in that disobedience. Every sin is rooted in I'm God. For for the next 30 seconds, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to do it in opposition to God. I know what he wants. I'm going to do something different. That is saying, I am God. That is a first commandment violation. It's the most serious sin you can commit because you are in open defiance. Anarchy is open defiance of God. Despising slavery is fundamentally open defiance of God. Because what does Paul say here? He doesn't say you've been set free from sin, and so now you're free. He says you're slaves to righteousness. We've mentioned in past episodes, and one of the reasons that Corey and I both love to point to Job is that God is our creator. And in the, the libertarian or the uh, Austrian conception of the creation of property, it's mixing your labor with the soil. So if you go down out in the wilderness, you dig a trench, you cut down trees, the act of taking something that was unclaimed and converting it into something useful is you making it your property. Well, the very first mixing labor with soil was what God did when he created Adam. He mixed his labor with the soil and he formed Adam from the ground, from the dirt, from the clay. And so that is why we are God's creature. He made us. In the creature-creator paradigm, is fundamentally one of property and that's something that austrian economics gets right that property is made yours by your working with it you've made something new now you're claiming it the difference is that god is creator literally created from nothing and so all things belong to him there's nothing in creation that doesn't belong to god especially us and the problem that we face today as christians when we assume these egalitarian post-enlightenment anti-slavery priors is that when you set your morality in opposition to slavery, you gloss over or you ignore or you have to repudiate these very passages that are intended for our comfort. We are slaves to Christ. We are slaves to righteousness because we're owned by God twice over. Every man is owned by God because we're creatures and God is our creator. Every Christian is owned twice over by God because God redeemed us. When he shed his blood for us on the cross, he purchased us with a price, and that was the price. It was his precious blood being shed for the remission of our sins. That purchase price purchased us back from the damnation we have earned by our sin. So we're owned as creatures, and we're owned secondarily—well, not secondarily, but we are owned yet again, twice over, as Christians, as believers who are covered in Christ's blood. That is ownership. When we put on the cloak of Christ's righteousness, that is like a yoke of slavery. Now, we don't look at it as a burden, which is the whole point of this episode. Slavery is not a burden. That is the lie that we have been sold for the last couple centuries, that, oh, if you're a slave, you're burdened. You're being mistreated. You have to flee. There's some passages we'll get to in a minute where it specifically talks about slaves being mistreated and bearing up underneath it, that you don't flee if you're mistreated. And God certainly doesn't mistreat us. We are first and foremost his property. So when Paul writes, when the Holy Spirit writes, we have been set free from sin to become slaves to righteousness, we need to take that seriously, and we must be slaves to righteousness. Now Lutherans get squeamish because, well, that that doesn't sound like the gospel. That sounds like, is that works righteousness? No, it's the post-soteriological life of the Christian. You are saved, now what? Now you are to be slaves to righteousness. It is a word that we must learn to redeem, because we we need to redeem it from our own lies and our own wayward hearts. And we need to embrace it, because it is God's will for us to be his slaves again, not to be slaves to Satan and slaves to
0: sin. And when you mention that slogan of the anarchist that has long been their slogan and still is today, it also brings to mind two other things. One, quote that is frequently used in this area in one passage of scripture dealing with the same sort of false conception of freedom, the literally satanic conception of freedom. The quote is from the French Jesuit-trained philosopher of the Enlightenment. What a cursed trivium that is. But Diderot, men will never be free until the last king is strangled with the entrails of the last priest. And I would hope as Christians and particularly listeners of this podcast, that people can see the problem with that. If you want to subvert the king, then you are attempting to subvert the right rulership of your nation. You are attempting to subvert the left-hand kingdom of Christ. And then, of course, destroying priests is somewhat self-explanatory, I would think. The passage from Scripture is Isaiah 14. Of course, it's the Statement that is attributed to Sargon, but really it's Sargon, the second, echoing Satan. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And that is the cry of every single person who wants to subvert hierarchy, order, god's intended rule in creation and it's also the same cry of every man who sins because that is exactly what you're doing when you sin you're saying no i am my own god i will do whatever i want regardless of what my creator intends for me or says i must do or must not do and that is this false conception of freedom or liberty that has become one of the core idols of the modern world and it's why slavery grates so much against the modern mind, because it runs directly counter to this idea of unbounded freedom as one of the highest goods, which of course is ridiculous, because one, there's no such thing as unbounded freedom, and two, it's not a good, even if you approach it, attempt to achieve it. And even today, just as a purely practical matter, we still have the equivalent of slavery. We still have actual slavery, but we have the equivalent as well. Because if you're an employee, your employer owns you to a certain degree. Yes, it may only be for X number of hours per day, whatever the terms of your contract are, but also you get less for it. Because historically, at the very least, and we can get into more of the history in a little bit, The slave master had to provide at least basic necessities for the slave, clothing, shelter, food, whereas your employer just pays you some lump sum for X amount of your time and then good luck, deal with everything else yourself. In some ways, many modern relationships of employee and employer are worse than the historical relation of serf and lord or master and slave.
1: The second passage that I referred to a minute ago, but I want to read in its entirety,
0: is from 1 Corinthians
1: 6. Paul writes, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. I think the error that we make today is we kind of gloss over that, for you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And we just think of it as kind of, you know, flowery language. Or it's, it's nice. It's a sentiment. When Paul wrote this, the audience of his day knew exactly what he meant because he was writing to believers of all stripes, of all stations, of all, you know, regardless of their race, regardless of their where they were in the social hierarchy, he was saying, you are not your own. Now, that was a a big countercultural thing to be saying to some of the wealthy people who were his own uh, benefactors. There were some people who were not slaves, who were were rich, independent citizens of Rome and of other nations. And so for him to say, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price— I don't want to say it stings, but it actually absolutely would cut to the quick for a man who would own perhaps hundreds, maybe even thousands of slaves and servants. For some of the very wealthy ones, for him to say you are not your own either, he would know exactly what that went. And for the slaves, for the the household slaves, for the muck slaves, for the highest or the lowest who were owned as property, they would hear what I had mentioned earlier, that they are in fact owned twice over. They're owned by their masters and they're owned by God. And so this notion of ownership of humans that is so antithetical to our ears is not antithetical to the Christian faith. So I mention up front, this is a really important episode because this is not, we're not talking about something that's this weird anachronism. It's, it's, it's a historical blip. It's something we got rid of and I'm glad it's gone we're talking about the human condition as it relates to our faith and whether or not slavery exists today i don't have a position on whether it should come back or not i don't care i don't think that what we have today is an improvement over what history has shown in the past i think in many ways it's far worse so if you want to start making moral arguments apart from slavery being prevented I would suggest you not do that because you might lose strictly on pragmatic grounds. If the employees of Amazon of Amazon and Jeff Bezos are not slaves and they're literally working themselves to death in his robot warehouses, I can show you a system where them being slaves would give better outcomes in their lives than being almost owned by a man who can then just dispose of them in a way that scripture would would condemn if they were his property and yet because they're not his property we pretend that they just fall through the cracks. No, this, these are moral matters that are active today, both in pragmatic terms in our, our lives and how our, our workplaces and our societies are structured. They're also fundamentally important in terms of how we understand the Christian faith. Because again, if you are slaves to righteousness and if you are not your own because you were bought with the price of Christ's blood on the cross, that that locks you in you are shackled by that. You are in chains for God's sake. There are things that you can no longer do that you could do before. You could do them in ignorance. It was sinful. It was wicked. You didn't know. Now that you know, now that you are slaves to righteousness, you must stop doing them because you know that you belong to God. And so this this slavery and this ownership stuff, it is not everything that there is to say about the Christian life. We don't want to give that impression, because ultimately, true Christian freedom is understanding this. It's freedom in service to Christ, but the freedom is not an unbounded freedom, as, as Corey said. It is freedom that's imperfect in this life, because we're still slaves to sin to some degree. We're we're freed by degrees through sanctification. I don't know how to say that exactly properly. It's We're both. We have one foot in both worlds, and it's why in Romans 7— Paul laments his own struggle against his flesh, where he doesn't do that, which he wants to do, but he does the sin that is within him. We all face that, and being Christians doesn't end our sinfulness. But what it does end is our absolute slavery to that sin. The absolute slavery is ended, and we instead become slaves to righteousness, where we know how to obey God as he wishes. And so these terms need to make a comeback. Talking about slavery in favorable terms needs to make a comeback, not necessarily just in spiritual terms, but the notion that as a husband, you are a slave to your family, even as you are the head, because what can you do? You can't just go run off and get drunk. You can't disappear for days at a time. You must serve them faithfully. I think the the aspect that's missing from the discussion of master and slave is that the master is also a slave by degree, because the master has obligations, and when you look at the moral obligations in Scripture enjoining joining master's actions, they become slaves to their slaves, not in the same sense, not in the sense of directing actions one versus the other, but in the sense that the master has obligations, has a vocation to preserve the health, the welfare, the spiritual care of those under his household, those whom he owns. And so it's not like you have freedom on one hand, and then abject shackled slavery on the other hand. There are obligations in every direction because God made us as social creatures, and a hierarchy is not in opposition to society. Hierarchy is the way a godly society functions. In a godly functioning society, hierarchy will have masters, and it will have slaves by whatever name, but it is not extraction from the weak and enrichment of the wealthy. It is it's a form of symbiosis, but in a godly fashion. And so these terms are not alien to the Christian faith, but the fact that they become alien to our own minds is why we are having so many of these problems today.
0: And you started off that section with a quote from 1 Corinthians, but another letter of Paul's was making the round same time, and that's Romans. And that, of course, starts off, the second word is slave. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. That is the proper conception of what it means to be a Christian. You are a slave of Christ. You are a slave of God because you were bought with a price. You belong to God. And when you bring up the issue of how employees and others are treated under our current system versus slaves... It, it brings to mind, I don't make it a point of necessarily quoting Kipling every episode, but it brings to mind a certain line, nor call too loud on freedom to cloak your weariness. Because that's really what we're doing. Our system allows those who are, by virtue of their position and their power, by virtue of their authority and means, they are masters. And they are masters over slaves. You can call them employees. You can call them at-will employees. You can call them whatever it is you like. But it's just like if you call yourself a president instead of an archbishop, or a district president instead of a bishop. God doesn't care what you call yourself. God cares what your position is, what your duties are that flow from that position. And so it's going to be the same for these individuals who have the role of master in our society, but do not live up to the standard of what a master is supposed to do. And one of the things a master is supposed to do is see that his slaves, see that those under him, those entrusted to his care, see that they are properly instructed in the faith. Can you name a single master in the left-hand kingdom who does that to any degree? It'd be a challenge. There, there may be a few here and there, but it would certainly be a challenge. And there's also the consideration that it's largely and quickly becoming illegal in our system to do that, but that is a, a separate issue. But I think the when you were mentioning the saint and sinner, the symbol there, what really you're you're touching on is the progressive nature of sanctification. We are justified, of course, immediately. Justification is a one-time thing. It is immediate. It is not progressive. It is not you're justified a little bit now and fully later on. It's not God does a little and then you do some, or God does a lot and you do some, it's none of that. Justification, holy God's work, monergistic, it happens, it's done. But sanctification is progressive. We get better over time as we remain in the faith. No, we're never perfect in this life, but as you progress in your faith, you will start to sin less, at least in certain ways there comes with that the recognition of more sins. And so you are never going to get to the point where you think, I am the holiest person ever to live. I am without sin. If you get to that point, you're in a very dangerous place because you've probably apostatized. But what you will do is some of those sins that plagued you in the past, as you are progressively sanctified by the Holy Spirit, those will fall away. But the Holy Spirit will point out, well, there's this other thing over here that you're doing. And so you'll notice more sins. And so the Christian life is, of course, one of constant struggle in this life against sin, against the flesh, against the world, against the devil. But there is progress. It's, it's not a standstill. It's not stagnation. You are getting better as you live as a Christian.
1: The next passage that I want to read is from Ephesians 6, and this is one that is mirrored very closely in Colossians 3. I'm not going to read both for time, but you should go read both. The reason I'm pointing out that it's repeated is that Paul uses some of the same words verbatim, some of the same phrases. This highlights that this passage from Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3. It's not just an aside. When he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters here in a second, it's not just, oh, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about this now, so I'm just going to mention it. This was clearly a core part of Paul's preaching. It was a core part of his ministry to those to whom he was reaching with the gospel. And so the fact that we would see phrases repeated verbatim, I think is significant. There's not a whole lot of that. I mean, It's almost like you have almost a, a synoptic epistle here with this passage. So in Ephesians 6, Paul writes, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So again, Paul is highlighting what I mentioned earlier, that you were Bob of the price will hit both the master and the slave in different ways, but very profoundly. And so I think we, today, we gloss over this. We don't think in terms of master and slave, but I think, I firmly believe that a proper understanding of the Christian faith, which again, can only come from scripture, like we're not making anything new up here. We're we're going through all of these passages that repeat over and over again. Slaves, your slaves, be good slaves. Masters, your masters, be good masters. There's never any commandment for a slave to run away. There's never a commandment for a master to free his slaves. And we'll get to Philemon here at the end, but we're saving that for last for a reason. But while it is an argument from silence, that's works when you're talking about God. Because if God doesn't condemn something as sin, we can't come along later and say, well, God just forgot to mention it. That's not how the Christian faith works. As I said last week, we don't get to discover new sins. So we deal with the text that we're given because Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit for us to receive these things. If it's not there, you don't get to believe it. And when God doesn't condemn something, you have to assume that's for a reason. You must believe that's for a reason. That's not a wild assumption. That is listening to the voice of God. And when he's silent, you know that you don't have to worry about that. If it were sin, God would tell you in no uncertain terms. So slaves, obey your earthly masters all by itself. If that were the only passage in Scripture, that would be condoning slavery qua slavery.
0: And so when a Christian sees, a modern Christian at least, sees that we're going to discuss the topic of slavery, probably the first book that jumps to mind is Philemon, because Philemon deals specifically with a runaway slave. And so many modern exegetes, really eisegetes in most cases, will use the book of Philemon in an attempt to argue that slavery is sinful because reasons. The problem is, if you actually read Philemon, and you have no excuse not to read Philemon, I'm looking at it right now open on my computer, it takes up less than my screen. It is a very short letter. If you read Philemon, there is no condemnation of slavery in it. And if you are familiar with Scripture, you should of course know that coming to Philemon, because Scripture never contradicts Scripture. God does not change. And so if you are familiar with the Old Testament, you know that God not only permitted slavery, but gave slaves to the patriarchs and to others, Job for instance, as a reward. He blessed individuals with slaves, with that form of property. And so Philemon cannot possibly argue against slavery qua slavery. And it doesn't. Because if you look at Philemon, The core of the letter is Paul returning the runaway slave Onesimus to his master. That is the core of what this letter is. Now, there's more to the letter, to the specifics of how Paul is dealing in the letter with Onesimus's master, etc. But the core of the letter is Paul returning a runaway slave. There is no way you can conceive of or argue that this letter is a condemnation of the practice of slavery. It's an absolutely insane position to take. And that's why historically, no one has taken that position. That is a modern innovation. It is seeking for a conclusion that was predetermined and then attempting to shoehorn it into scripture instead of reading what is actually on the page.
1: One of the things that leapt out to me this past time that I was reading through it was in the second to last paragraph, he says, So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Now, I I found that interesting as I was reading through this in the context of this discussion because what Paul is describing there is fundamentally transactional. He is saying... Onesimus is your property he is not his own for he was bought with a price the price that Philemon paid for him and Philemon as you as you mentioned is a is a very rich man you can tell from the context of the letter that he has a large household so for one thing Onesimus would not be his only slave and that is one of the profound arguments from silence we find here if this were Paul just trying to be politely correcting the sin of effectively a parishioner slash patron, he would have said, hey man, you need to free all of your slaves. Don't you know that you're sinning by owning another man? Not only does he not do that, but he effectively says in that, in that passage, I'll buy him from you. Oh, by the way, you also owe me a great deal. So if we want to talk about money, maybe you want to call it even, but I'll leave that up to you. So it, it's very friendly. It's very loving but it's also very slick. And I I don't say that in in a condemning fashion, but Paul's saying like, look, this guy who in all likelihood ran away, there are different theories about how Onesimus ended up in the same place as Paul. There's questions surrounding, did he steal something? What did he steal? And perhaps the money is part of that. I think the one thing that cannot be disputed, the one thing that is clearly in the text by necessary inference is that Onesimus stole himself. He violated the 10th commandment. He stole his master's property by leaving because he was not his own. He was bought with a price, the price the Philemon paid. And so Paul is acknowledging that in the end of this letter saying, if he owes you anything, charge it to my account, which, by the way, has a substantial credit. So, you know, maybe, you know, I don't need to actually pay you any money. But this is fundamentally transactional and not moral.
0: A little bit of context is necessary here for most modern readers, because most modern readers are going to miss some of the subtext here, because they don't understand Roman slavery. First off, under the system of Roman slavery, a slave was not a person, persona in Latin. A slave was a race, R-E-S, a thing, a piece of property. Legally, that was the status of a slave. And masters had more or less absolute authority over their slaves. There were some reforms here and there in the Roman system that required, for instance, a reason to beat your slave to death, because originally you didn't even need a reason. But that was the sort of nature of the reforms that you would have in the Roman system. And so the ordinary course of events, if a runaway slave were returned to his master, if Onesimus were returned to Philemon, is that Philemon would choose between killing him outright or literally branding his forehead with the Latin word for runaway slave, from which we get fugitive, fugitivus, usually just F, V, G, because Latin used the V instead of the U. And so those were the two options. And if he had been subjected to the latter option, he would have been branded and then kept as a menial slave doing manual labor, most likely, for the rest of his life. And so that's the subtext you have here. Paul is saying, I recognize the rights that you have under the law to dispense with your property. I am asking you to forego those because of this man's service to me in my captivity, because he is now a brother in Christ. He's not saying to free him. He's saying don't kill him or brand him and make him dig ditches the rest of his life. And that's a subtext that a modern reader is going to miss if you are not familiar with Roman slavery, with the system in which Paul is writing this letter and operating.
1: And that was something that uh, if you happen to get your hands on the Philemon commentary from Concordia Publishing House for a letter that's basically one page, the, the commentary is hundreds of pages. And there's a lot of great historical context for what slavery was like in this period. And that's why I said early on when people hear stories about slavery in the Americas, they think, oh, that's the worst it could possibly be. No, that was—many of those slaves were treated quite well. Some of them were treated poorly, some were horribly mistreated, which is expressly condemned by Scripture. No one's okay with that, because God says it's sinful. And even someone who didn't have faith would know that some treatment is well beyond the line of what is permissible to another human being. The commentary by Norling from CPH, interestingly. Directly contradicts the statement that we re- read last week from the Missouri Synod Corporation Discussing pro-slavery being an abomination. What the CPH commentary says is that our modern notions have Are, are completely anachronistic. We don't even understand slavery as itself We understand the Hollywood version of it and when you look at historical slavery, it was fundamental to human civilization. And so the book goes into great detail on many different facets of different degrees and categories and ranks of slaves. There were some slaves who were far richer than anyone who will ever listen to this podcast. They're literally millionaires by, by gray stretches, some more than that, perhaps. Yet they were still slaves, meaning they were still owned by other men. So this modern notion that we have been fed that if you're a slave you're basically an animal there's nothing lower than that that's not what slave means that's what mistreatment means that's what dehumanization means there are words for those things but the word is not slave enslavement doesn't necessarily mean that a sin has occurred when solomon took slaves he was permitted to do that now we don't have the legal regime for today and so it's not a question that we need to deal with how might one become a slave today? But as Corey mentioned, anyone in prison is functionally a slave. If they're doing forced labor, they're getting paid, I don't know, like 25 cents a day or something, like it's nominal. They're slaves. It's slave labor. And the 13th Amendment permits it because we didn't abolish slavery. We abolished non-state slavery. So these notions have so been we're buried Sparta. and they... <laughs> yes. Which is <laughs> the, the other form of is... slavery we still have. this is sparta in the least cool way possible (laughs) um and so like the the philemon book goes or sorry the the philemon commentary goes to great lengths to describe all the various myriad fashions of enslavement and how some of them had very high social status again there were the right-hand man in a household mate was usually going to be a slave he would be he would have very high station in life he would be paid like these were slaves who were not just given quarters and food they were also remunerated which was something that was done in the west as well like it's not it's not alien to the concept of a man owning another man just as today when Jeff Bezos almost owns someone he pays him something it's not nearly enough but owning a man is not per se sinful scripture never makes that case and even in this in the one epistle that is directly dealing with a slave like, there's no, there's no playing around that Onesimus was a bondservant or he was this or that. He was a slave. He was runaway property. He sinned against Philemon by stealing himself. And as Corey said, the punishment was death or disfigurement. Paul was saying, he was a useless slave to you, but now that he has become Christian, I'm getting some use out of him. So let's get get this useless slave off your books and let's put him to work as a slave to righteousness. See, Paul was not asking for a freedom. He was asking for the slave to righteousness that he had already become in Christ to be his sole vocation, so that he was no longer divided between his obligations to God and in serving Paul and whatever his master Philemon may have still required of him. It was transactional. It was for the sake of the church, and in no way does it in any fashion condemn the institution of slavery itself by any means there was far worse slavery that occurred in those days and scripture remains silent except for saying masters don't do horrible things to your slaves like that's the christian approach not abolition but let's treat them well i want to read briefly just because it's directly related to this from first peter 2. servants and this is one case where the ESV is not butchering it, so I left servant here. It's using a different word, but basically it's the highest form of slave. Servant here basically means the house slave, so it's still not a free man. We're not talking about a butler in a tuxedo. We're not talking about someone who you know is, has a savings account. Of, in his. You know, We're not talking about Alfred in Batman. We're talking about someone who's owned by his master. Servants be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust for it is a gracious thing when mindful of god one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly for what credit is it if when you sin you are beaten for it you endure but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure this is a gracious thing in the sight of god for to this you have been called because christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have been returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The reason I read that whole passage, even though the second half doesn't have anything to do with slavery is that it does that's the gospel christ was a slave for the sake of our righteousness by imputing his to us the act of sacrifice that god gave on the cross was an act of submission and so when christ is given as a model of slavery to slaves and we say ah slavery is bad how is that not a condemnation of christ That's why this is a gospel issue. That's why this is how Christians need to return to talking. If you are afraid to say that slavery is good, how do you deal with passages like this? How do you deal with the fact that when Paul is a slave and Christ is described as as suffering, as an example, to slaves, the only way a Christian faithfully deal with these passages is to set aside the Enlightenment priors that condemn these things and to embrace that which is holy, and then to condemn that which God condemns as He condemns it. God condemns cruelty. He condemns being merciless. He condemns being unjust and unfair. What He does not condemn is that slavery is per se any of those things. Slavery can be some or all of those things, slavery can also be none of those things. And if and when slavery exists as a human institution, we are not permitted to say, well, God doesn't want that either. That is no longer speaking in God's name. And this sort of morality has become the norm among us and is truly destructive. Again, that's why Stone Choir exists. We're talking about these things that many pastors are deathly afraid to talk of for good reason. There may be people in their parishes in their pews in their congregations who will revolt, who either attack them, try to get them fired, or just never come back, stop giving money. Like Any matter, uh, any number of bad things may happen socially, organizationally, when someone in the pews hears what God says about slavery. We don't have to deal with those problems immediately, so we're free to speak in these terms. But we need to get as a church back to the point that all Christians are speaking in the same terms that God uses. If you can't talk like God, you can't be godly.
0: And so I think we'll close out this episode by refuting one salient argument, not sound, but salient argument from the other side. And that is the hyperfocus on one Greek word in 1 Timothy 1.10. And the word is mistranslated in the ESV as enslavers. Now it is worth noting first, this is a hapax legomenon. It appears once in scripture and that's right here. There are some other places where the equivalent concept appears, but it is obvious that it is the equivalent concept only if you know what the term means. And so, in this case, to figure out what the term means, it is entirely proper to turn to extra-biblical materials, because this word appears once, again, appears one time in Scripture. The term is andropodistes. But I went ahead and looked this term up in various Greek writings. I looked it up in Plato, Polybius, and Philo. And the term means kidnapper. And it is worth noting that actually the Lutheran Study Bible gets this one absolutely correct. In the footnote for 1 Timothy 1.10, the Lutheran Study Bible, unlike the leadership of Synod right now, notes that this term actually means kidnappers involved in illegal slave trade and that's absolutely what it means it does not mean enslavers it does not mean slave dealers because obviously if scripture permits slavery slave dealing can't be a sin that would be a wildly incoherent argument and so what this is saying is you cannot set upon your neighbor in the dead of night bind him and sell him into slavery because that was something that happened in the ancient world. That is a sin. You are not permitted to do that. That is what is being banned here in 1 Timothy 1.10. And so when someone tries to make the argument that, well, Scripture says you can't be an enslaver, and so you can't have slavery because you can't have slave dealing, point out the actual sense of this term and the fact that it appears once in Scripture. You cannot make an argument about a doctrine from Scripture about a fact from Scripture that relies on a term that appears once if that argument that you are making is contrary to the balance of Scripture. You know that obviously you are wrong. As stated earlier, Scripture does not contradict Scripture. So Scripture permits slavery, as we very clearly demonstrated it does in many places, does not condemn slavery, this one word, this Greek word that appears once cannot possibly be an argument for condemning slavery qua slavery. It condemns kidnapping and selling into slavery in an improper way. This is not a condemnation of taking captives in war that is permitted in the Old Testament. It is arguing against this one specific ancient practice that still does occur in some parts of the world, not as much of a problem in the Western world, but it still occurs in some places. That is what is mentioned here in First Timothy. And so that is how you respond to that particular argument that does, unfortunately, get raised by some who have, well, a mercenary approach to Scripture in order to seek the end they want.
1: And that's exactly what we see when these questions come up. We've criticized repeatedly in past episodes. Men will take modern morality, they will cherry-pick one or two proof texts, and nullify the entire history of the Christian faith. The reason that this term only shows up once in Scripture is, is that it wasn't that common in an environment where slavery of all kinds was universal. So on its face, the notion that what they are saying is the origin of all slavery condemns all slavery, just mathematically, is it, it's a blatant lie. And that's the only response that's necessary to such a claim. I think to wrap up here, I just want to reiterate that this is a more important subject than, than some of the others. It's more important than the racism subject, which was also talking about a made-up sin, because this is a much more fundamental one in terms of the direct attack on the faith. We, As, as we said at the beginning, this could have been a, a 20-hour episode. We could have done a marathon just on the verses dealing with it. We barely scratched the surface, and we really rushed through dealing with the text we talked about because we wanted to keep it under 90 minutes, which we're right at at this point. So I'm just going to say... There's no way for a Christian to read the Bible and come away thinking that slavery is sin. Full stop. If someone comes to you and says that slavery is a sin, either they haven't read the Bible or they despise it. Those are the only two options. And when it's a Christian who has a collar, you know they've read the Bible, which means that the only option is they despise it. And that is a crucial emergency for us facing all of our denominations today because, again, we're importing this evil from the world. Stonequire exists to point out, hey, maybe we believe scripture and if our modern institutions disagree with it we figure out what problem we need to solve there but we begin and end in scripture because that is what god has given to us for the preservation of the faith
0: and if you want a one word not a one word but a one line response to anyone who tells you that slavery is a sin jesus christ is a slave master and if you want to follow up The thing that you want to hear from him when you get to the judgment room, when you get to the throne, is, well done, good and faithful slave.
1: I do want to mention one last thing. I forgot to mention this earlier. Lord is synonym with master. Every time you read Lord in scripture, if you replace that in your head with master, it is a synonym. When you pray the Lord's prayer, you're praying the master's prayer. It means exactly the same thing we are owned by God we have a master just as unbelievers have a master their master is Satan our master is Christ our master is God so when you say Lord Lord and you mean it faithfully you are saying master master as someone who is above you it's not you know we've criticized neighbor as being this nebulous thing Lord is not a nebulous thing It is not just a cozy relationship. We have a loving relationship with God because we are adopted as sons of Christ, as sons of God through Christ's blood. However, Lord remains master, and that relationship is the reason for the loving relationship that we had. He owns us and he loves us. He could own us and hate us, and he hates our sin and he hates the evildoers who will not repent of their sin. He wishes simultaneously that they become believers through the gospel. If we cannot speak clearly in these terms, if we cannot call a Lord, Lord, and a master, master, and realize that they're the same, we're losing sight of the God that we claim to confess. Because you can use all the words, you can quote the Bible passages, and you cannot believe in your heart. That's what we're facing in our churches, people who say the words, they mouth them. But when you say God is your master, they rebel and they say, I have no gods, I have no masters. It's one or the other. We all have a master, and either it's sin and the devil, or it is God and his righteousness. And as Christians, we are blessed to be able to continue to choose God's righteousness, because that is a gift that comes solely from God, not through any merit or worthiness in ourselves, It is given to us freely and it is our duty to share that gospel with others so that they too can become slaves to God's righteousness.